Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, and join us for our speed race through this week's tech news, including stories on Juniper, IBM, iTential, and more. This week, we're sponsored by Cables and Kits. They are experts in awesome. Get your IT needs and Cisco-related products at cablesandkits.com. And if you mention packet pushers, you can get a free Cat8 cable and some free loot. Stick around. After the news, we have a conversation with the White Family Auto Dealers on how they dropped their managed service provider in favor of operating 19 dealerships themselves with a little help from Fortinet's branch security and SD-WAN products and Fortinet the sponsor, but we're just talking to the auto dealers, IT director, and sysadmin about the visibility and control they got from going DIY, essentially. Yeah, it was a good little chat, actually, because you don't think of auto dealers having all of the compliance requirements that we often talk about. So their PCI and personal data and all that sort of stuff. And when you actually think about it, when you buy a car, they have all the personal data, all your financial data, they take credit cards and all that sort of strange. Strange. Right, doing credit checks, yeah. So they, mm. yeah, it's a good, it's a good one. Check mm. it out. All right, uh, we do have some uh, news to get to, but first we're going to start with a little fu. This is based on uh, uh, Jonah Till Johnston's guest appearance last week on the network break while I was yes, out. Yes, we got an email in from somebody who said, "Please talk, stop talking over your guest host. You don't talk over Drew like that. Why don't you do that to her? Let her get her point across, all of it, and then respond." I don't know, Drew. I I did actually talk across Jonah, and that is my fault. But the issue here is that the network break is speed. And in fact, I used to get criticized for this in our early days until I realized that I needed to sit down with you and say, we've got to hustle through this show in 30 to 40 minutes. This show is not meant to be an hour long, leisurely stroll through the topics. It's meant to be hit hard and fast. And if you want more information, go to the source. And what I should have done in hindsight is I should have stopped the recording and said to Jonah, we need to cut this short. But I didn't because I was trying to hustle through and I made a mistake. So I apologize for talking over the top of Jonah. Yeah, so not to excuse your absolutely boorish behavior, but um, you and I have done, you know, three, four hundred recordings together now. So we've sort of developed a a rapport. Mm -hmm. And if Jonah comes back, and I'm sure she will, that that will happen naturally as well. So, you know, and you are just (laughs) an excitable debater. So I think that that's what it is more than Yeah, well, I mean, I don't do it so much on uh, the main shows, like the heavy networking, because there's plenty of time. We're not hustling through right. those like we are here. We've got a whole bunch of topics that we need to get through, and we're trying to get through them in the shortest possible time so that we're not wasting your time. And But yes, what I should have done is stopped and then pointed out to Jonah. But once we're in the network break, you're sort of running, and it's like a sprint through yep. to the end, and I didn't take the, didn't realize it. So yes, I do note, however, that Jonah is joining us. We're rebooting the Heavy Strategy podcast in a few weeks and Jonah and I will be going head to head on one topic in 15 to 30 minutes. And I promise not to talk over the top of her then. So, um, and I did raise this with Jonah and she said it was fine. She said it was, it was what it was, should have been. So, and she's going to make sure that uh, we hustle through it next time. Fantastic. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that heavy strategy with you and Jonah. That should be fun. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because Jonah, of course, is a really strong speaker and she's got great opinions, but she's also got data because she's a research analyst. And so, I will throw out an idea and she'll come back and say, well, my research data doesn't validate that. And that's really hard to argue with. So you really have to come, (laughs) you have to come with both guns loaded to sort of, you know, get your arguments across. So we'll see. That's right. All right. All right. Uh, and if you ever have uh, follow-up feedback, corrections, hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. We love to hear from you, but let's jump into the news. First, Juniper is teasing a forthcoming SASE solution with the launch of Security Director Cloud. As you might guess from the product name, Security Director Cloud is a cloud-based version of Juniper's Security Director product. Security Director provides a unified management interface for all of Juniper's security portfolio, so the firewalls, the VPN client, all that 
on-premises in the cloud, the hardware and the virtual products. So we know Juniper doesn't have a SASE offering yet, but I guess it's laying the groundwork, particularly the policy groundwork with this security director cloud release. Yeah, I, one of the theses that we have on the network break that we see or, or patterns that we see repeated over and over is that security is not a product, it's a feature. And the days of you going out and buying a security product and adding it as a bolt-on or running it independently of the network or the server or the orchestration engine or your Kubernetes or your Docker containers or whatever, or your storage, the security is increasingly becoming embedded inside the other technology into the point where, you know, and this is, we've seen this happen before, of course, where a firewall is a router that doesn't, that does security, right? And so that- right spin in the market is repeating. And what we're seeing here, of course, is all of the incumbent vendors are going out and acquiring security companies and embedding the security features in the products that arguably should have been there always. Uh, SD-WAN has been doing SaaS almost since SD-WAN arrived, right? Mm -hmm. In a way, yeah. Yeah. You know, as soon as we saw SD-WAN arrive, it was literally the first inklings that we had from startups reaching out to us to talk to us about adding security functions, you know, firewalling, scanning, content scanning, and cloud access security brokers looked at SD-WAN and went, this is genius for us. You know, companies like Zscaler and Prisma, which was later acquired by Palo and so forth, they just went like, this is the obvious match. A SaaS, you know, SD-WAN is the perfect product to have security embedded in it. So I think this is that. This is Juniper realizing um that they need to beef up their security offerings and embed them into the network so that they have networking products with the inbuilt security features that customers want and they don't have to buy them separately or independently. So what is it that you felt about this that was unique? You took the briefing on this. Yeah, so of all the things you want to talk about with SASE, you know, policy is probably the least uh, sexy, the least grabbing, but it's also absolutely essential. And so maybe Juniper's starting there because one, that's where they already have a product they can work with. But two, you do need to get your your ACLs, your IPS settings, your web security gateway settings right. If you've already sort of done that groundwork, if you're a Juniper customer, you've done that groundwork because you're using their SRXs and all their other portfolios Mm. and you're managing it through security cloud through the security director, you can essentially import all that into security director cloud once you buy into Juniper's eventual SASE service. So it's sort of like you've done a lot of that groundwork already that mm-hmm. if you were going to a third party SASE, you'd, you'd have to do all over again, essentially, when you're setting your policy controls in that cloud-based platform. Mm-hmm. So Juniper's saying, if you stick with us, you've already done a lot of that groundwork. Well, you have. Once the network is actually the first stage of the security, you don't go to your security platform and then define your network around it you have your networking platform and build your security onto it. Now, Juniper, of course, recently acquired 128 Technology. They have a particular form of SD-WAN, which is well-suited to cloud-based security because session-based routing, you just pick up the flow or the session and then send it off to a scanning engine in the cloud is quite... And also that that idea of centrally hosted or centrally managed security scan seems to be very popular and seems to be workable for most enterprises. They don't seem to be demanding that this get done on-premise. Right. I think the other value proposition they're saying here is that, uh, yes, SASE is great because you're going to have remote users who need to get security scanning, but you're also still going to have your hardware firewalls, your branch devices. You need to manage those too. We give you one location to do all of that. Um, 
it's, Juniper still has a lot of work to do to actually develop and release a full-blown SASE service. They've got to build out their POPs. They've got to build out the security software platform that you're actually doing all the security controls and scanning on in the cloud mm-hmm. edge. Um, but this is, I think, they're they're putting their market down because they've seen their competitors, Cisco, VMware, say, we've also got SASE. And so I think Juniper had to do something too to say, don't don't worry, we're, you know, Juniper customers, we're getting there as well. Well, it's not just uh, networking competitors also. Don't forget you've got Fortinet with as much networking in the SD-WAN as, as Cisco and Juniper. Yes. You've got uh, Palo Alto. Uh, Checkpoint's a bit behind. I don't think they've, I haven't seen anything from them that I would call SD-WAN. They seem to be sort of pretty happy with where they're at in the game. But certainly most of the traditional firewall companies or security companies, even F5 as a load balancer is now trying to get into the SD-WAN space and saying it's got an SD-WAN play using its service mesh stuff. It's sort of not quite there yet, but I think you'll see them launch into the SD-WAN space in the near future. They've got the security part, they've got the service mesh part, um, and so turning it into SD-WAN won't be very difficult. So all those traditional vendors will all converge on the same product space soon, and it also then becomes a multi-cloud play. So as we've seen with companies like Alkira, there's a whole game of how do you make one networking strategy that stretches between wherever you are? And a lot of companies are not yet in the cloud, or if they're in the cloud, they don't have a networking problem yet, but it's coming. It's coming. Right. And I feel like Juniper is moving in some ways relatively quickly for Juniper, given that um, Sassy's out there. Zscaler has been around for a long time. Palo Alto has been moving very quickly into this space. But as we saw with the SD-WAN market, even though we talk about it all the time, adoption is still at like like 20, 25 percent. Mm. So Juniper can take its time, I think, yes. in moving to this market. Yeah. That's true. That's why they're in regard late to, to move with yeah. one to eight technology acquisition and um, cover up the gaps where their in-house developed SD-WAN wasn't meeting what customers wanted. So, yeah, I, I think they've yeah. got plenty of time. I mean, Zscaler, where do they go? Do they, you know, they were doing really well there for a while <laughs> when everybody was just doing SD-WAN and would send traffic to Zscaler. Now Zscaler's kind of left looking orphaned. A little bit because Zsc- all that Zscaler, I shouldn't say all that, but Zscaler is essentially a SASE company. They've got the client piece to get uh, traffic into their cloud, um, but that's sort of, I hate to call it a one-trick pony, but that's basically what they do. So I don't know if they can, are they viable just doing that? Or if you look at their stock price now, they're doing fantastic. So yes, there's value there for them. I wonder if there'll be an acquisition target down the line, but you also see folks like Cisco and VMware taking piece parts off their shelves and sort of wrapping it into a SASE solution. I assume Juniper's doing the same, so I don't know who might buy them. So yeah, yeah Zscaler, Doing well for now, but who knows what the future yeah, looks it's like. Hard to see them, it's hard to see them having a long road ahead unless they, you know, if all of the people buying SD-WAN, you need an SD-WAN first and then a cloud broker second. You don't need a cloud broker first. And, you know, right. they always said, like, we don't want to sell hardware, we don't want to be on premises. Well, that's where the enterprise is. Uh, you know, yeah. there's only so many customers out there who will buy the solution that Zscaler wants to sell. So... You know, you have to meet the customers where they are, as AWS and Google found out. They said, we've got this cloud. We've defined it this way. You have to come and use it the way we want you to use it. And everybody went like, no. And so then they had to turn around and develop enterprise sales teams and turn their products into enterprise-ready packaging, AWS Outposts, for example, so on and so forth. Yeah. Interesting times. All right, let's move on. Uh, IBM announced it has developed a two nanometer process for semiconductors, allowing it to fit more transistors into a smaller area, resulting in higher performance and better energy efficiency. IBM says the new process allows it to get as many as 50 billion transistors into a 150 square millimeter area. So there's lots of reasons to question this. Um, Two nanometer is a kind of an interesting idea. You're literally saying 
that you can define, cut a shape in the silicon substrate that's smaller than the bandwidth of the light that you're using to do the cutting, right? Which is just bonkers insane. And if you want to understand more about that, I've linked you to a YouTube uh, from a, a a person who is a doctor in silicon design or ASIC design, and he talks all about the details behind the two nanometer CPU. It's well worth a 10-minute watch to get a really great insight. And his point, he said to them, so what makes this two nanometers? And basically what he's saying is that when you add up how many transistors that you can get on the die, there's a nominal two nanometer distance. Notwithstanding, Two nanometers could potentially, and the, did you notice the, the press release is worded very carefully? It says the potential to, mm-hmm. to have the following, right? right? It doesn't say we're going right. to get the following. It says addressing this growing demand. It is projected to achieve 45% higher performance or 75% lower energy use than today's most advanced seven nanometer node chips. Of course, we use five nanometer, but okay, going with you know to make the numbers look good. So I think this is it is an amazing thing. This is absolutely mind-boggling, amazing two nanometer process. This isn't just a theory. This is actually a process, and they've proven it by using equipment to produce a uh, a wafer that has a two nanometer process over the top of the exist using existing technology, and that is quite something. So in theory, if you can cut forty-five percent faster because it's that much smaller. Or you can improve mm. the seventy the energy efficiency by up to seventy five percent. That is a big step forward for particularly mobile electronics. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Yeah, we should be clear that this is essentially a research project. It's a proof of concept. Uh, any kind of actual chip delivery is years and years away. As you mentioned, you know, the, the state of the art now is five nanometer. With folks like mm. TSMC, Intel still struggling to get to seven nanometer. So we're a while away from two nanometer in the real world. But it's amazing to see that this. <laughs> capability does exist. Yeah, it's, it's also interesting. It's part of that research. I hadn't thought about it before, but the, there was a professor talking about ASIC design uh, back in 2018, and she was basically saying that if the chip design keep going the way they're going, you'll only ever be able to have 25% of the chip turned on at any time because it's physically impossible to get that much current flowing through the chip. But the interesting <laughs> part is as the chips get smaller, you need less current. So you can actually get more of the chip switched on. So there's some interesting physics problems going on here. It was fascinating to learn. But yeah, YouTube channel, highly recommend if you're into following uh, Silicon and Essex. Yeah, we'll have that link in the show notes to this episode. I also put it in our most recent uh, Human Infrastructure magazine. So if you're a subscriber, check out uh, issue 209, I believe, if you want to find that YouTube video too. All right, moving on, network automation vendor Itential has announced a SaaS version of its product. It can automate cloud, virtual, and on-premises networks. Itential does automation capabilities for things like configuration management, software upgrades, device onboarding, compliance checks. Uh, Intel is competing with the likes of Glueware, Appstra, and Anuda. So now they've got a SaaS option in their portfolio. Yeah, I think the, the, the first thing that I thought about this was, do you, I really want my automation engine in the cloud? And sometimes I'm not sure how I feel about cloud-based solutions. Like for SD-WAN and SASE, I feel that the cloud applications feels normal. But somehow feeling having my external monitoring and visibility tooling is not so normal in the cloud. It doesn't strike me as normal because all of my data goes out into the cloud and somebody else has got it and I haven't. And I'm not entirely sure. Now, that just might be being an old fuddy-duddy and not understanding that there's some value that's in there. But still, I do think that the fashion for hosting applications in the cloud has so much momentum that if I was potential, I probably have to make products that customers think they want. 
So it doesn't really matter what I think. If this makes sense, I think customers are asking for SaaS. They don't want to have to um, you know, download a VM and deploy it. They want it to just be able to instantiate in the cloud. There's also a sales angle. It's really easy to demo a product when you can just click a button and a version pops up in the cloud. That's what I was going to yeah. say, yeah. <laughs> that worked. Yeah, the one reason to have a SaaS solution is to get that, try it free for 30 days, no obligation, and here's yeah, the link. It's a lot cheaper than having a sales rep come out and harass you. Uh but I still believe that the best feature, perhaps, of cloud-hosted applications is that the vendors are forced to take responsibility for those for the upgrades and maintenance of their apps. And I don't know, mm-hmm. I, like I have this sense that that whole cloud-based thing and the use of whatever the cloud uses or how you know has overhauled the whole development process, containers and proper grown-up development and testing cycles. Because if you've got five hundred, a thousand customers running the ver- on the version that's in the cloud. And you're saying, no, no, we're going to shut it down on Saturday all day to do the upgrade. You are not going to be popular, right? And that's what we used to do with on-prem monitoring solutions. It would take a day to upgrade and we'd have to take it down, turn it off, do the upgrade, put it back, you know. So there has been, there is definitely an advantage here to having cloud-hosted applications. I'm just not sure how I feel about it some days. And congrats to Attential for coming up with a SaaS version so people can see more of it. I will say your objection to having sensitive information in the cloud, you know, five years ago, that was a roadblock. I think that's eroded. Uh, It's been eroding for a long time. We've seen Meraki take off and be very successful. Um, And (laughs) I'll mention SolarWinds Edge, just because it's on-prem doesn't mean it's secure. Mm -hmm. Uh, So obviously you have to keep in mind the caveats of, is it multi-tenant? Is my uh, information logically segmented? Is it encrypted? Those kinds of things. But once you've satisfied yourself to that, then I think the the reluctance of having sensitive information in the cloud, that that objection is uh, fading. I I agree. Yep. But still. <laughs> I know, I know. It's still like, do Look, am I sure? That's my like config. I said, do I, really I might want be that? my prejudices. I'd said it out loud, and I was clear that I might be scratching an itch that only I have. So, okay, I accept your point. Don't have to rub All it right. in. Don't have to rub it in. Oh, come on, give me. It's Friday. Let me. Uh, some other potential news. They've also announced a partnership with Forward Networks. Uh, Forward takes state information from your router, switchers, firewalls, and other network devices and builds essentially a real-time logical model of your network or a digital twin. And then you can use the model to do things like see reachability, test changes against it, and ensure that the policies and configurations you set up are working as intended. So... This is a nice, I think, mesh with Itential in that you've got the automation piece and also that uh, verification piece. Yeah, uh, I feel that you would be a situation. I could come up with a use case in my mind where you have forward networks in your monitor, looking at your network and then extracting the state and the information um, and then analyzing it and saying, oh, you've got a problem in your configuration here or you said that your intent is this and I can test it and say that this isn't working because they've got the model and the the formal verification math. We've done plenty of shows with uh, forward and talked about the idea of uh, intent modeling and all that sort of stuff. The, the integration with something like Itential is that you could then say, I could create an automation that fixes it. And then every time it happens, I just press this script and it goes and fixes that. So if you have something like a configuration drift or a security problem or an access list that does something, then this way it could fix it up pretty quickly, which I think is really interesting. And it's a fairly native because forward networks doesn't configure the network. It just sees the network. Right. It gives you that visibility. I think the other side of that is if you kick off this automation or orchestration process and the job runs, then you're sort of like, okay, did it work? And did I open any holes that I didn't mean to? And with something like forward, you can then go out and actually test it and make sure that yes, it happened the way you wanted it to. So it does seem like a nice meld of the two technologies. Mm. It feels natural. There's a synergy there. It doesn't feel like this is a, this isn't a head scratcher at all. 
Yeah. And we should note um, for competitor Veriflow, they have a similar technology. They were acquired by VMware and VMware has now integrated into its vRealize Network Insights product for essentially the same reason. So there's some other validation there if you're wondering yeah, about Yeah, it's the natural thing. People don't actually, the first step is knowing, is having the feedback loop to say this isn't working. The second step is fixing the feedback loop. Is saying, well, I now need to make a change to the system to rectify the feedback. But a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Cables and Kits. They are sponsoring today's episode. They are an award-winning IT equipment dealer with a focus on networking products from SFP modules and servers to fiber and rack hardware. As part of Cables and Kits' gratefulness to Packet Pushers listeners, they're giving away a Cat8 Ethernet cable to anyone who mentions Packet Pushers if you make an equipment purchase at cablesandkits.com. So whether you're looking for a one-off wall mount rack replacement or a full-blown data center outfit, Cables and Kits can help your team. Go to cablesandkits.com, tell them Packet Pusher sent you, and snag that free Cat8 Ethernet cable. Cablesandkits.com. Hang it on the wall. What you should do is calculate how much latency <laughs> is in that cable and then tell somebody, because that's what Grace Hopper used to do. She used to walk around mm -hmm. with a piece of cable in her handbag, and she'd say, that is a nanosecond. And that was how she got generals to understand <laughs> latency in the network, which nice. I thought was pretty cute. That's cool. Yeah, that's cute. That's cute. It is, yes. That's mm -hmm. smart. All right, back to the news live action. They make network performance management software. They have acquired security company Counterflow AI for an undisclosed amount. Counterflow AI is in the NDR or network detection and response space. Essentially, they capture flow records using software-based collectors and then analyze behavior and packet metadata to look for behaviors and anomalies that may indicate a threat. Uh, this is in the category of networking product with security features. So network detection and response in whether it uses AI or mystical magic and palm reading from Mystic Meg doesn't really matter at the end of the day. The point is, is that having network detection response as a separate product makes no sense. It needs to be part of some other function. You don't wake up, you don't wake up in the morning going, oh, I wish my monitoring platform needed ne network detection and response. I'll have to go and buy a separate product for that. What you want is for it to be the same, right? And so mm -hmm. this makes sense to me that live action would say, we're already doing monitoring and analysis. And the natural complement to that is have a security component to that in the same way that SD-WAN took networking and turned it into SaaS. So I think this is a good stray in that uh, now that you've got visibility in the network, you can add that into your um, security. They're using AI, of course, or claiming that everybody's got a bit of AI. It's like armpits right around here <laughs> at the moment. Uh, and they talk about in the session that streamlining previously siloed operations, NetOps, and security operations workflows, SecOps, using common data platform integration. So I kind of dig with that. Um, so that's a viable premise as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it is entirely buzzword compliant, but I do think there is something to this integration of networking visibility, security visibility, uh, particularly from the networking perspective. It's, uh, I think, a sensible integration for live action. Live action also does a lot of uh, their analysis based on flow records. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if there's going to be some kind of software bundle integration where instead of having to deploy two separate flow collectors, you can get it all in one. We'll yeah. see down the line, but that, that makes sense. Well, strategically, there's always an advantage when a small company can do something that big companies will find difficult too, right? So live action can buy this other small company, add a complementary product, but competitor products say like Proofpoint that we talked about last week or Cisco would find it difficult to merge their network monitoring and their network security products into a unified offering and forego revenue or have internal bickering over whose headcount is going to survive or whatever, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, mm -hmm. That doesn't stop big vendors from promising that they're, as, as a single supplier, they've got a unified offering, even though they don't. But that is the reality. And I think small companies that can move nimbly like this do have, do have something to say 
or some, you know, a viable yeah. premise. Uh, so a couple of pieces on supply chain issues. First, there's a Texas newspaper reporting that a Samsung fabrication plant in Austin lost almost $300 million due to plant shutdowns during that February freeze in Texas that disrupted electricity generation. Apparently, the factory lost about 71,000 semiconductor wafers uh, and was also offline for more than a month as they tried to carefully bring it back online. Yeah, I didn't realize that a wafer takes something like anywhere from four to 12 weeks to be produced. And if at any stage mm-hmm. the power, if the, that gets disrupted, that wafer has to be discarded quite often. It's not like it can just be stopped and then reinserted. If those machines shut down, the whole process can fail. And so they're actually mm-hmm. talking about not just a bit of a loss for a few weeks. They're talking they lost three months' worth of production because they had to throw out mm-hmm. everything that was in the factory or something like that. And I, I think it's interesting to sort of that we're starting to think about the supply chain and just how fragile it's been. Maybe we've had a bit of a golden period where everything kind of worked right and supply chains got leaner and prices got lower, and now we're reaching the limits of what those supply chains can do. We found out how fragile they are. Um, but the numbers are staggering. $300 million because you put a factory in Texas where the electricity system is fragile. Right. It's all of these you know, uh, externalities and dependencies that you hadn't necessarily thought of. Uh, and I think there's also maybe something to this whole... I don't know how much it comes into semiconductor manufacturing, but this whole notion of lean and just in time, um, we may have come to the edge of what we can sort of feasibly expect. But there's also things like, you know, water shortage we talked about in Taiwan affecting TSMC. So mm-hmm. all these things that, you know, when you're building a plant and thinking about manufacturing chips, maybe folks like us hadn't thought of. Yeah. And it's interesting to learn about them, obviously, but also to think about them as a customer. What does that mean to you? Because to me, yes. the 300 million that Samsung says that they've lost here probably doesn't include what they're going to do to fix or secure the electricity supply. What are they going to do to stop this mm-hmm. from happening again, right? You can't right. just say, oh, well, too bad, turn the factory back on, go. You're going to have to come up with an answer to the electricity. So they're going to be talking to the Texas electricity supply. And there's an organization that does not say, Yes, Mr. Customer, we'll definitely do it. (laughs) The Texas Electricity Organization deliberately disconnected itself from the US grid because it did not want to pay interchange fees, and that's why it was unable to access sufficient power. But that also meant it was much cheaper, and that attracted the factory there. So interesting circumstances, and Samsung will now be saying, sure, I wanted cheap electricity, but now I want reliable electricity too. So I wonder what that looks like. (laughs) That will be interesting. Uh, sticking with supply chain woes, Greg, I guess you found a Reddit thread from our networking uh, with complaints about order delays stretching from weeks to months for networking gear. Or years in some cases. So this Reddit thread just basically, someone started it. It's only a day old, so it only yesterday at time of recording. Today is Friday the 7th of May as we record. Uh, this is the uh, lead out. This thing seemed to have gone from bad to worse, and now it's almost impossible to get any sort of gear We're in Australia and literally can't seem to get any Cisco gear, and I have no idea what I'm meant to do. I've had an order in for a bunch of 9200Ls and various routers since January, which had an estimate of the end of April, which is now blown out to the end of July. Uh, And then he says, uh, I spoke to one of my suppliers today, said if I don't have any orders in by the end of the month, not to expect anything this side of Christmas. And there's a whole long thread, which is getting longer because it's only one day in, of people saying, yes, this is what we're seeing and uh, we've sort of only been flagging this for a very short period of time. It didn't really come onto my radar, probably for too late to help you. Um, anything more than to highlight it just before things got really grim. But I do wonder what's the impact here, Drew? What is it? What is it going to do to us? 
Something just occurred to me now as we were talking, uh, we haven't heard any of the cloud providers say whether they're being affected by these supply chain woes. And we sort of think of you know AWS, Google, et cetera, as infinite scale, but it's not. It's There are physical limitations and they still need to buy equipment just like anybody else. So I wonder if we're going to see this also bleed into cloud scale and cloud capacity availability. I, I don't know. I think the cloud companies might be able to secure their supply chains better in the sense that they're negotiating directly with the ASIC makers <laughs> and they're buying at a scale right. where they can literally pay their way up. They have, they're not shy. They would see this as a market opportunity. And if I can Certainly. If I lock the traditional vendors out from ASIC manufacturing capacity, I might just do that to mm -hmm. buy market share because I know that more people mm -hmm. will come to the cloud. And, you know, companies like Amazon and Google and Azure have already spent $400 billion if I can drop a couple of billion to buy out the asset capacity that I need, that's nothing. I'm already four hundred billion dollars spent. Why not a couple of billion more? Yeah. yeah. So that could be yes. I mean, they definitely have leverage with their suppliers, and I'm sure they're uh, leaning on that leverage with all their power. I think you know, in looking at the show notes, you and I put together, both of us cottoned onto secondary markets as an option here, uh, potentially for folks to think about if they're <laughs> starving for gear. I think the vendors might come in with a refresh market. Um, not something we've talked about a lot, but some of the vendors actually have their own remanufactured, as they call it. But I think there's a second, there's a thriving secondhand market, and that does not mean eBay, by the way. Uh, that means right. there are resellers out there who buy products on the secondhand market. So there's a few things there. One is, is if you've got secondhand gear lying around, you might want to start thinking about selling it because you might get good money for it. And then, of course, if you're desperate for stuff, you might want to buy it in the remanufactured, the secondhand resale market. And then go and buy your licenses from the vendors who can't supply you hardware, and you might find they're a little bit more friendly about selling you software because they'd rather sell you what they've got in stock than sell you nothing. Yeah. So as you mentioned, there's the refurbished option. Companies like Cisco and others mm. have actual like refurbished products. Uh, and there's a link in the show notes if you want to check out Cisco's, where you can buy essentially secondhand gear, but it's from Cisco, so it's got all of the proper licensing, and you can still get Cisco support from it and stuff. And then there are actual secondary market players. There's a company called Curvature, is probably the biggest I can think of, mm. where they're selling you used equipment, but they say they're you know they'll offer support and they're making sure it's clean mm. and trying to eliminate counterfeit gear. And then like you mentioned, there's randos on eBay that you just. <laughs> Well, maybe you don't, but maybe what you start thinking to do is start thinking about white box, right? Start thinking about software routers instead of hardware routers, like x86 servers running software and see what you get out of that. Maybe you don't have to buy custom hardware. Maybe you go for more generic volume hardware and or, and or consider white box switches. Lots of choices. Yeah, assuming you can get them because they're having the same problems as mm. everybody else. If you're going through this and you've got some creative solutions or ideas, hit us up, packetpushers.net. FU, we'd love to hear how folks are grappling mm, with this. For sure. All right, our last story for the day. Juniper Networks reported their Q1 2021 results. The company had $1.07 billion in revenue for the quarter, up 8% year over year, but down 12% sequentially. And they posted a net income loss of $31 million. The loss is not too bad uh, considering the number of acquisitions that they've made. So... <laughs> It was actually a positive. Not it's not as bad as it sounds. Um, I, I thought there was a few things in this, in the sense that I, this is the one that we've picked out of all the vendors. There was a lot of numbers reported this week, and generally, all of the tech con companies blew the lid off revenue and profit margins, except the ones who'd made acquisitions, of course. So there were some holes in the thing. Um, the uh, Rami Rahim said momentum was especially strong in our cloud and enterprise vertical with cloud orders growing nearly 30% year over year and enterprise orders growing more than 20% year over year. 
decoding the tea leaves there, Juniper's making traction on the Enterprise, albeit off a fairly small base. And then the second thing I noted mm-hmm. was they were seeing good early interest in Abstra 128 technology and net rounds, which are not only strengthening our position in several attractive end markets, but also enhancing the success of the broader Juniper portfolio. So I think there's a couple of things to decode there. He's reminding the analysts that we've bought three companies, Abstra 128 and net rounds, and that is actually creating pull-through sales on our other products. So uh, this is this idea of a bundle. I keep talking about the idea of a bundle here. People don't buy routers and then buy other things to fill in the gaps around the strategy. They want to buy it all as one. And the idea that yeah. your network should come as a unified strategy is in this field. And I think Juniper's tap trying to tap into that. Yeah, and it also shows you know where their emphasis are is uh, Abstra is data center automation or orchestration for the enterprise 128 technologies, SD-WAN, and it sounds like it's also going to be tied into their uh, SASE solution in the future. And then NetRounds is for the, uh, that's um, essentially synthetic transaction testing for the telco space. Interesting uh, that they talked a lot about order book growth a lot. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that in the transcript, but I think that the word order book growth is code for supply chain problems. We've got orders that we can't sell. <laughs> and uh, I did start to read some of the others, and that is actually the code. If you go and read if, you know, other vendors, publicly traded vendors and their results, they all talk about a growing order book, I think, which is code for we've got a lot of orders and no product to sell. We've sort of penciled it in, but we can't actually uh, tally the revenue because, yeah. We yeah, we've got, got orders, money. but we can't deliver because we've got no products to ship. Uh, yeah. So Ken Miller, who's the CFO, when in his part of the speech said, this is Juniper's CFO, we continue to work closely with our suppliers to further enhance our resiliency and mitigate disruptions outside of our control. It's not our fault. Despite these actions, we believe extended lead times will likely persist for the next few quarters. It's not going to be fixed this year. While the situation is dynamic at this point in time, we believe we will have access to sufficient semiconductor supply to meet our full financial year forecast. Um the, there's lots of discussion here, but I believe what most of the vendors are doing is just doubling the size of their orders and taking the hit. So they're going to be left with a lot of stock. Of course, what happens is when they start doubling the order book, they increase the demand on the, on the manufacturing capacity and make the problem worse. Right. So who knows? Exactly. We'll see. We will see. We will see. But clearly they see this problem being uh, an issue over the next few quarters. So I think that means if you have supplies uh, that you are looking at over the next few quarters, plan accordingly. I would say so. Um, You just might not get that project in and maybe the public cloud is actually where you want to be. Who knows? Yeah, we'll see. All right, that does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet customer White Family Auto Dealers and the benefits of doing it yourself. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we discuss SD-WAN and SD-Branch deployment with an auto dealership. They have 19 locations across the United States, and this business needed a more efficient way to connect their locations, make sure they've got high performance on their critical applications, and they need security capabilities to meet regulatory requirements for protecting customer financial information. Now, our sponsor today is Fortinet, but instead of hearing from the vendor, we're talking to Shane Williams. He is director of IT, and Paul Provorce. He is system administrator, both of the White Family Auto Dealerships. And besides SD-WAN, we're going to talk about how and why the company is using Fortinet AP switches, firewalls, and other gear at its locations. So Shane and Paul, welcome to the podcast. Uh, You two are part of an IT team. You're supporting a bunch of dealerships across the country. Um, What was your network situation like sort of before and after you went to SD-WAN? Before, we were relying upon uh, an MSP, providing network services uh, support. And we had a lot of issues over the years uh, gathering information or solving problems or just getting answers to things for C-level 
So we tried to capture the network infrastructure so that we had a better view into things and control. Uh, the car manufacturers have some strict security requirements that we have to abide because we're handling financial information for customers. Yeah. So you had this MSP and you're feeling a sense of frustration. There's often two ways that that could go. One way is that the MSP is trying to do their best, but the technology they've got isn't up for it. You know, like if you're running an IPSEC point to point network, that can be a struggle to manage that and keep it going. Or do you think it was just the MSP was struggling internally? Maybe the business had sort of changed over the years and wasn't able to operate effectively was it one or both of those do you think more often than not if we would call from a problem you would get somebody that wouldn't understand what we were looking for or Mm. what to do to correct the problem so then we would get handed down to the next tier of support or you would sit on hold for hours so i think it's more of the company struggling Mm. but i'm sure both are a factor in some degree and so you decided instead of struggling with this MSP, you were just going to do it yourself. Uh, you settled on Fortinet as your primary vendor and you kind of went all in, right? You're doing SD-WAN, you're doing firewalls, you're doing their wireless APs and switches. Yeah, the the platform as a whole has worked very well for, for us, all the different, different pieces of it. They talk well, communicate, automation. It's satisfied everything we were looking for. And how did you land on Fortinet? Uh, It initially started from General Motors. Uh, General Motors was trying to push FortiGates on all the dealers, but using another MSP to manage those. Mm -hmm. So I took the idea of using the FortiGates, but managing it ourselves instead of paying somebody else to do what we were trying to get away from in the first place. Right. Okay. So you said, sure, I'll go with Fortinet, but I'm doing it myself. Right. That's kind of brave. So I guess it's been a couple of years. You feel like that was definitely the right choice? Yes, I do. Um, like I said, everything works. We 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 can see everything that, that's going on day to day. I'm not spending hours on the phone uh, w- waiting for answers or support. Um, so, Paul, when, when Shane says visibility, you can see what he's going on. Does he mean... Like he can get charts and you can see how much bandwidth is going. You can see a device, or is he talking about you can configure stuff and you can see what the configuration is? It how does that look to you? Everything from policies to devices on the network. I mean, it's uh, we have full visibility into the entire edge to network access layer, and then we have integrations with other Fortinet products such as Fort Fort EDR uh, that can actually, you know, detect a compromised host and disable the switch port. They quarantine the the device and uh, right. the whole thing just meshes really well. So you, you using this whole portfolio, um, did, did, so did you start with firewalls and kind of add piece by piece or did you sort of jump right in with everything? We started with just the FortiGates um, and then decided to add switches after we were done deploying all the FortiGates. And we quickly seen the, the potential with the uh, FortiNet platform and started adding more pieces to it and seeing how everything goes together well. And I'm assuming, uh, I'm going to take a guess that you probably don't have an IT person at every dealership. So are you having to do all of this management and policy setting and uh, operations remotely? Yeah, we're doing everything remotely. Um, A lot of the configuration uh, can be done with the Ford manager. If we need to deploy a security policy to all of the firewalls, for example, we can just do it from that one spot and push it to all of them instead of having to uh, reinvent the wheel 20 times. 
Right. Okay. Instead of logging into each device and setting that policy, you've got one location to push it out everywhere. Correct. Okay. And that applies to the switches, the APs, everything. Yeah. Um, Fortnite manager has a component to, to manage all of those different components. It sounds like uh, SD-WAN wasn't initially on your radar. How did you uh, get involved in the SD-WAN component? So another um, goal of ours was to have redundancy for the internet services. So that's where we noticed the SD-WAN features in the FortiGate mm-hmm. and uh, decided to give that a try. And it's worked very well for us. Instead of having um, a secondary internet service, for example, just sitting idle, collecting dust and being mm-hmm. paid for, uh-huh. and now we can use them both at the same time. So let me ask you a quick question. You've gone from having an MSP managing it all for you. Now, I assume that includes the circuits and the bandwidth rentals and all that sort of stuff. And now you're managing it yourself. Does that not add a burden? Some people say they're frightened of managing all the extra connections themselves. Is that something that is a struggle? Well, no, it's not necessarily a struggle. We, I, I enjoy my job. I know Paul does. <laughs> and, and, and we work well together. We enjoy what we do. And I love learning new things. And this is been kind of like we think of these things as toys more than <laughs> devices <laughs> so this is sort of like a strategic decision but you also get to indulge doing something you really like doing yeah exactly it's it's a yeah. win-win but it's not painful like it doesn't sound to me like sometimes managing you know you've got 19 sites you're going to have at least 40 odd connections that you've got to manage and bill and invoice is that particularly painful to do or is it just like it's actually so much better than it was before it's like that's not a problem no it's it's much better than it was before like i said all of everything that we need to know it's easily accessible Mm. um i'm not trying to to bs the cfo with answers to things (laughs) (laughs) and you know he knows that you're doing it as well and he's pretty like i know he's trying his best with what he's got sort of thing and so right yeah. Now, your apps that you're running in-house are actually quite significant. We we haven't touched on this because it didn't occur to me until we were chatting in the prep that a car dealership is actually a financial institution for some purposes. Yes, definitely. We're considered a financial institution and we have a lot of private customer information for the financial applications for cars. Uh-huh. Um credit card transactions we have pci compliance requirements and the 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 manufacturers are very serious about security Hmm. if if there is something if there is a breach at the car dealerships it's going to most likely affect their brand as well right Hmm. so which is now your problem yeah exactly right (laughs) so did uh one of the things about pci in particular it's got a a lot of specifications, but they don't say use X, Y, or Z particularly. Did you find it difficult to meet an auditor's uh, requirements when you sort of rolled out this uh, Fortinet package? It actually made it easier. And and a a good example is the credit card terminals. Now we can easily have somebody plug in a credit card terminal. We can segment that terminal on a VLAN Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't have access we don't like to keep the door open to the credit card terminals. <laughs> yeah. So, so you actually put it into like a, a, a micro segment. So it's isolated from the general dealer traffic. Yeah. Like a sandboxed yeah. VLAN, right. which was yeah. one of, one of the PCI requirements. 
Um, and, and you've got a simple way when the assessor shows up to show to say, yes, here's how we're meeting, you know, all of these X number of requirements. Yeah, it's it's very easy to get the proof they, they require. It's pretty easy, actually. If you've got a centralized management console like the 40 manager, it's really easy to just say, yeah, here it is here. See this? That's and this is all of our terminals. Whereas before you would have had to show on paper configs and done this is what it, and they would have run around to each side and followed cables. And now it's a lot easier, isn't it? Oh, yes, definitely a lot easier. So speaking of segmentation, I assume, you know, since you've got customers coming in and wandering around the, the, the floor and looking at cars and probably checking their phones to see if they can get a price somewhere else or whatever, or just watching videos while they wait, are you providing internet service to customers and, and how are you handling that given all the security requirements you have around uh, privacy and so on? Yeah, we have uh, guest Wi-Fi at all of our locations. The, the Wi-Fi SSIDs are on um, a tunnel mode uh, they're segmented from the the business yeah. Wi-Fi. Um, other than that, though, we it's kind of the wild west for the customers and <laughs> their Wi-Fi space. Uh-huh. We're not there to police that. It's usually <laughs> at your own risk. Okay, so you're I not setting you're- up any URL filtering or anything. They can do what they want, oh. but it's separate from what you're up to. Right. You know, you could send it off to a service and get it scanned, but I think at the end of the day, the the secret here is that you're willing to, you feel safe enough in the secure, in the solution, and you've passed the audits for it, to give guest Wi-Fi on the same physical infrastructure as you're using for business. It's on the same physical infrastructure, but it's mm. it's segmented from everything else. Sandbox. And you feel, and the the point here is that you're confident enough in the configuration of it and the operation of it to do that. Because if you didn't, you would actually have it completely isolated, perhaps like a lot of companies say, yeah, yeah, we do that, but they have a, a separate internet connection and a separate router and a separate Wi-Fi to do that. But you're not oh, doing that. No, um, no, that's not a, we haven't encountered anything yet, thankfully, but no, I'm mostly confident that that's not going to be an issue at least yet. So Paul, I assume, you know, you're one of the people uh, sort of in the cockpit piloting this machine. Um, do you feel like you have the visibility, the tools you need that you're confident every day that you can get your job done? Yeah. So, you know, with, with SD branch as a whole, we have four to switches and APs and, you know, it'll, it'll go ahead and we have the ability to extend our firewall security out to the wire to wireless networks. And this gives me more device visibility, you know, with the centralized management platform. Um, and that visibility, you know, the, the flip side of visibility is it can be overwhelming. Do you feel like you're getting too much thrown at you or is it presented in a way that's consumable? No, it's definitely presented in a way that's consumable. Uh, everything's nicely segmented in the GUI, so nothing seems overcomplicated. It's it's really easy to get where you need to go and find the section that you need to go to in order to take a look at whatever, whatever might be going on in the network. Here's my favorite question around new technology, and my test is what I call the 5 o'clock test. Am I going home at 5 o'clock more often because I'm not being called up or I don't have to work late? Is that Does it pass that test for you? It does. You know, I, I still have that uneasy feelings, still never know if I'm going to wake up in the morning and have some sort of uh, meltdown at one of the locations. But I do feel a lot better about it than what we yeah. were running before. Mm. And the fact that you can dig into logs and such instead of having to wait on the phone for someone who doesn't know what they're doing to try to, yeah, figure yeah, out so for to you. contact somebody that uh, you know may or may not understand what you're trying to 
get to the bottom of yeah. and you kind of have to explain everything multiple times to people, you know, cause that rep might not be able to help you. So they're going to be like, well, let's escalate this to tier two. And then you talk to them and, and then they say, can you prove it? Can you prove it? Yeah. Or can, can you, you repeat everything again? Yeah, yeah, you know, right. can you tell me what's going on? <laughs> so <laughs> you end up saying the same thing 10 times, yeah. just trying to get the answer to a very simple question that we could have resolved ourselves, you know, within the first 10 minutes. Yeah. Or they do the finger pointing tactic or yeah. it's not us. It's your ISP, you know, or whatever yeah, the case yeah, may be. Right. So. I think, I think the interesting thing here too, is that you're also managing all the circuits and the interesting part about SD-WAN that people just forget once you've got an SD-WAN, you forget is that both lots of all your bandwidth is being used. You've got an active and you've got a standby in the old system when you had, you know, an IPSEC tunnel or whatever, you know, MPLS. And now you've got both working at the same time and it, it just works, right? The, the, the flows are load balanced over both. And if the, one of the network connections goes down, it's, you almost don't find out about it until the uh, monitoring system tells you, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's very fluid in the way that it works. You know, we have our virtual WAN interfaces set up and we can add multiple. Uh, we have two broadband connections and then we have mm. an NLTE re- redundancy on top of that as well. Mm. So there's it's got to get through all three. I mean, it's got to be a perfect storm. To uh, get through all three of those, <laughs> I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's. Uh, I, I sleep better at night knowing that I, you know there's that automatic failover. I have a new respect for car dealerships. I did not realize that you had financial obligations, and that you're also willing to go to the step where you're running two primary bandwidth connections via you know broadband and or cable in this case, but also to back it up with LTE to make sure you're meeting your service level goals. That's not something that comes to mind when I think about car dealerships and the well, business. Well, and, and another interesting fact is we're a group, you know, we have multiple OEMs and two OEMs may not agree on how your infrastructure should be set up. So we have to kind of find a solution that satisfies everyone. And Fortinet has been that answer for us. You know, we've been able to check all the boxes mm. that, you know, maybe Ford or Chevrolet may not agree on. You, you know, have to have enough features to, yeah. to satisfy all the requirements. You can't just Ex- meet exactly. the minimum requirements. You have to go. Yeah. Above and beyond. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Well, that does wrap up the time we have for this conversation. Thank you, Shane and Paul, for joining us. Uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to you. Uh, thanks to Fortinet for being a Forti sponsor. If you want to find out more about their product suite, go to Fortinet.com. Uh, the Packet Pushers Network has an abundance of technical conversations on networking, cloud, professional development. You can find it all at PacketPushers.net. You can also follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.